people love science. Well, people love to say that they love science. And everyone seems to know exactly how it works and pushes for nothing but true scientific evidence in everything. But if COVID has taught us anything, it's that no one actually means that. When we see how science works, our broken little brains start rooting for our side of the scientific argument even if the scientists themselves aren't doing that. But, is this new? I mean, has science always been so difficult to parse that it needs a translator? Has science and society never communicated well? This, and how science works, today on Why Aren't You Talking About This? Hello everyone, and welcome to Waytat. I am your host, William, and I will be your fuck-shoutin', humanities-lovin', science communicator today. Well, you're... Eh, kinda? Like, I'm not gonna pretend that I'm a good one. Like I said, I'm a humanities nerd. But, anyways, as always, thank you for listening. It means the world. Even if you're listening because a Twitch streamer I also like called me a bad leftist. Which, you're thinking about the same one and he listened to my show... Holy shit, I will take it. Alright, and like normal, make sure to download this episode and also to send in emails for episode 20. It's really coming up fast. Also, as the first episode being released in June, uh, happy Pride, everyone. Uh, this will be my first Pride Month as anything more than an ally, and if you just so happen to be in Oregon, you might finally have a Pride event at some point during the month. Well, if, you know, you've done some, like, stalking of me, or you uh, hear me reading something out in the future. But, anyways, on with the show. Alright, so today we are talking about science. Something that, while I personally have a hard time understanding at times, I absolutely love. Let me tell you, the number of times I've tried to put science in my stories only to go, ah, fuck it, I'll wait if this takes off and... You know, if someone like Matt Pat talks shit, I'll wreck on it then. Because, you know, I don't know how to apply 4.83 Gs into how much pull you'd feel towards a source of gravity. Trust me, the math is fucking dumb on that. But speaking of which, today's episode isn't about science as a whole. Because that would be way too big of a topic. Instead, we're tackling the basics of the incredibly broad topic of science versus society. And of that, we're mostly going to be talking about how science and general society both interact and misunderstand each other. Mostly about how society doesn't understand science. I'm assuming you understand society because you're listening to a podcast. Actually, I might need to uh, describe how society works. 
But anyways, to do that, let's first ask a question that I doubt you've ever heard someone that isn't an asshole ask. Which really isn't going to change now. What is science? If you want to look at it philosophically, science is the study of reality and the search for the ultimate truth of the universe that very, very unfortunately is becoming very clear, doesn't actually exist, and never did. But if you want to look literally, or definitionally, totally a word, uh, science is the process in which we derive reliable, predictable, and predictive rules of reality through controlled experimentation. Which is a complex way to say the study of how things be things. You know, like, for example, how do we know the Earth is round or the immune system works the way it does? Well, because we've tested these things over and over again with a variety of experiments that test if our notions are true, and the results have either been exactly what is expected or so close to what is expected that still falls within the range of true. You know, like if we tested one dude's immune system and it just motherfucked every single disease known to man, and then we did blood work and his antibodies are just miniature terminators, that's really abnormal, but it's not like his entire system is different from everyone else's. Now, another very important thing to touch on, not because it necessarily relates to the topic at hand, but because I speak in outdated memes, because I stopped keeping up in 2017, is the idea of humanity's brain and STEM brain. Uh, and this is a very vague pair of terms that I just want to get ahead of, because I know if I don't explain it, someone will get on me about it. What I'm describing using these terms is two different styles of thinking patterns and interests. You know, someone like me with humanities brain, or as a humanities nerd, loves subjects like art, literature, theology, politics, and social sciences, and tends to operate in shades of gray where argumentation can be done with very little in the way of hard numbers and figures because it's more about morality and philosophy and aesthetic rather than strictly efficiency. And someone who is a STEM brain Love subjects having to do with science, technology, engineering, math, and the study of numbers and computers, and they tend to operate more in black and white, and argumentation for them is most effective when it has numbers, data, and figures, regardless, necessarily, of the morality or deeper philosophical connotations about it. And, of course, obviously, this is not a hard and fast world of reality that all people fall into one of these two categories. Just... People that get into internet fights and also make podcasts. And this is going to come up a whole lot this episode because I think saying STEM brain and STEM lord is funny. You'll get tired of it. You'll see. But anyways, science is going to be something we discuss and it's actually part of the miscommunication between science and culture rather than me covering my own ass. Let's also talk about the scientific method. Now, this is a methodology of how to produce reliable results with as little bias and faith as possible, and the most evidence and assurance of truth as possible that has been hammered out over the course of millennia. And why is this important? Well, thank you for asking my fellow artists. I see that you also view truth as relative. Well, because at the core, we have really fucked it up. Basically, because science is trying to figure out the rules of reality and how things work for certain, and has long been tasked with finding the truth of reality as well as allowing us to master it to some degree, making assumptions is highly discouraged. Because it doesn't really ask the truth about reality if the ground moves, and instead of letting the STEM nerds ask why, 
we butt in and say, God did that because we were naughty. Fucking artist. But anyways, how does it work? Well, it starts with a question. Hey, I've noticed most plants are a shade of green. Why is that? Now, what you do next is background research to ensure a few things. Firstly, that the question isn't already being answered, and that the answer is actually good and empirical, and not just some fucking artist saying, well, because green means nature. Secondly, that if to answer this question was attempted, that there wasn't some horrific crime against humanity, God, and nature committed, or that there wasn't something accidental that happened, to make sure that you don't repeat someone else's mistake, and also to make sure you can actually finish the test. You know, like if somehow someone died during the course of this and their work still got published, don't do what they did. And third, this research will give you some potential ideas as to what the answers might be and what to experiment on. Like, for example, you do your background research, and you know, let's say this is at a time where, for some reason, no one knows why plants are green, and it comes out that plants actually consume sunlight and air to live. Well, that's really important for how you're going to answer the question, knowing all the necessary background information going into it. So, step three, you create a hypothesis, which is a fancy way to, say, answer your own question based on the background research. So, for example, plants are green because when you mix the yellow color of the sun and the blue color of the sky, you get green. I didn't say that you were smart in this analogy. And, see, you aren't done yet because your next step would be to perform an experiment. Experiment in this case being an activity where you control every single variable as much as possible while simultaneously changing one variable at a time for different results. So, for example, for this experiment, you grow plants underground, away from light and air in the exact same soil, and you grow half using a spotlight and air to the outside, and the other half with CO2 canisters, because, you know, that's not air, silly, that's canned choking, and UV emitters. And... Don't ask me how you have the resources for any of that, but don't understand why plants are green. This is an example that I don't have to actually know anything about to say. Don't question my shit. I'll... I'll, I'll give you a kiss. Okay, so the fifth step is to check the procedure to see if it's both valid and works. Basically, now that you've actually performed the experiment, is it actually testing what you're trying to test? And is it reasonably viable to perform, or is it just basically impossible? If it passes, continue on to step six. Otherwise, troubleshoot and do another round of experimentations. Step six is to analyze the data and draw some conclusions based on it. The plants in both types of soil grew and were both green, so it has nothing to do with color mixing. And now move on to step seven. Check if the results and hypothesis agree. If they do, move on to the next step, and if they don't, form a new hypothesis. Well, maybe plants are green because something inside of them is green. There you go, now you're thinking. Which is also a lot easier to test out, you probably should have started with that. But once you've gotten a correct hypothesis, communicate the entire process that you just did to the world in writing. Share the entire journey you went through, report your biases, mistakes, and difficulties with the experiment, including all the data information you've collected, and what the conclusion is. Like, yep, there's green shit in there. Step nine is to receive feedback from other scientists and have them check your work by both retesting to find other problems, and let the experiment and larger study it's part of 
get used like a glory hole of knowledge until it reaches a consensus from your colleagues. At which point, other scientists will ask their own questions based off of this answer. And congratulations, you've done a science. And, you know, this basic structure is used by most, if not all, fields, but it can shift a little bit. Like, on a smaller scale, someone who studies the physics of light might set up a light refraction experiment in a lab. A psychologist will do a pentuple blind study asking if gym goths are objectively more attractive than other types of people. And the answer is yes, if you're one of them, hit me up, please. Uh, or a chemist will experiment with chemical combinations and probably live to tell other chemists to wear a gas mask when they do, can all easily use this process without really too many major changes. But that's not true for an astrophysicist studying black holes, a neurologist trying to map what parts of the brain are involved in causing someone with an alt-right anime profile picture to think that anyone likes them, or a biochemist trying to track down and name the single motherfucking sex gene that keeps turning people into homosexual frogs, this process isn't exactly the best in its unedited form. And all of these fields will modify it in their own way. Which leads to another thing to understand. What science actually is. See, it's not the font of truth. In fact, very little of science nowadays is really even in pursuit of truth or even finding something useful to do with it. That's for the humanities nerds and the engineers to figure out. What science is, is a font of data and information. What we get out of this information is on the scientists, engineers, makers, and thinkers that absorb it. Like, for example, we know the Earth is round. How? We did the math back in ancient Greece because some big Greek asshole made the observation that they couldn't see Egypt and used their knowledge of shapes to make the correct assumption Earth was a sphere based on all the evidence they had. And knowing the height of the pyramids, they did some math for how big a sphere would need to be to not be able to see it from where they were and were extremely, like, extremely close to the correct answer. Like, I think they were within a few miles of the correct answer. Now, is this useful information that changed the face of human development forever? No. Fuck no. Who cares? Because this data answered a question. And the Greeks at the time didn't really have the capacity, nor really the desire to circumnavigate the planet to prove it true. Because what's the fucking point? Because, you know, they had shit that they were dealing with, like war and feeding themselves. Science didn't say, hey, the Earth is round and also this big. Science said, moving on a sphere works like this, and this is a very big number, and it was the Greeks that determined that those two things were both related and that this information was relevant to someone for some reason. And fundamentally, how we speak and how science communicates are entirely different beasts. In language, there's value, judgment, opinion, connotation within the word choice, word order, tone, inclination and the sense that came before and the ones that come after. You know, me and my dad, we have a favorite called That Isn't My Foot. That changes a lot of meanings depending on where you put the, uh, the stress in that sentence. Words have a lot of meaning and weight behind them, and on some level, much of communication occurs for a result. Now, Maybe not a big one, but it occurs to cause something. 
especially within other people. Or almost entirely within other people. We don't have uh, spells, unfortunately. Science doesn't work like that. Science asks the universe who, what, when, where, and why, and then when that answer is found, the answer is published. And does science tell you what to do with that? Fuck no. That's not the point. The point is the data itself, and science's information and reason put into terms our dumb little brains can understand. We desire things to have meaning and purpose and for everything to have a reason. We want actions we can do and ways to use knowledge. What do I blame? What do I do? When do I do it? Where do I do it? Why should I care? And science doesn't give a singular fuck about answering those questions. That's on us. We're the ones with the dumb little monkey brains, not science. And people in STEM, particularly scientists, are really, really fucking bad at explaining all of this. Because understand that STEM prizes and seeks out people that think in rational, precise, and data-minded ways, and has a strong preference for hard empirical proof of things. But the world, since politics is, you know, like the humanities, but somehow a lot worse, is run by people who think in truths, morality, action, and a shitload of shit talk. And this causes a lot of misunderstanding and miscommunication, because scientists speak precisely about things and are usually very specific in their data and information and word choice. But us scum suckers aren't precise. Those of us in the humanities are used to working off of how things are presented rather than what is being presented. But also, largely, this is somewhat intentional on the part of science. Because in order to actually chase down some facsimile of actually understanding the world, we need to cut out as much of the chatter as possible. Meaning that you need to eliminate prejudice, assumption, implication, faith, and bias as much as possible and work in a system that requires everything to be concrete and proven objectively. And related to that is that scientists tear each other's work apart and pick at it incessantly. I mean, for artists, this is a nightmare, because in our field, taking apart something someone put themselves into, without softening the blow in some way, is seen as rude. And even after being trained to take criticism and also give criticism, I can say, even from personal experience, it's hard not to have the knee-jerk, well, fuck it then, reaction, and want to burn down the entire piece of work when someone tells me I used too many commas in my poem about BDSM. Which, you know, might be a self-report. But in science, this isn't the case. Instead, this is part of the process of discovery. Picking at the work of other scientists is just seen as part of the job, and by repeating, critiquing, questioning, and improving upon each other, scientists are able to work together to slowly hammer out all the kinks in a study or project, eventually come away with something that is as close to the truth as humans are capable of getting to, and all of the context needed to actually itch that part of our monkey brain that demands answers to the universe that doesn't even know that we're asking. But all this information is why science communicators exist. I mean, one, science as a whole is extremely dense and also extremely specific. You know, like how a kilowatt and a kilowatt hour are different things, and one of those you can convert into joules and the other one you can't. Or literally anything having to do with the science of gravity, or anything beyond the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell with biology and biochemistry. So you need someone who knows that information and is also capable of telling you what that actually means in real-world numbers instead of wacky, silly science numbers that only people that actually understand reality know. 
but it's also to help cut down on this miscommunication and help people to not just understand, but actually love science. Because what a science communicator is, is someone that takes these complex ideas that aren't meant for normal people and humanities nerds to understand and turns it into something digestible and common speak for us so we don't have to pretend to be paying attention. But before we move on to the history section, I want to give two specific examples I've seen over and over again about science about society not understanding science that inspired this episode. The first is the use of the term theory. See, in general society, what do you think theory means? It's an idea or a concept or a group of ideas that when taken together explains something. And in general society, most people use theory to mean guess or assumption when they want to sound smarter or like they've really thought about it. It also has an air of being insubstantial and not really matching with reality, like saying, well, theoretically, you know, for example, theoretically, I think all humans can fit into about a dozen or maybe a dozen and a half archetypes. And the term theoretically is acting as a shield, almost to say, well, if you find someone that isn't, it's just a theory, so it's not perfect. And this isn't how it works in science at all. A scientific theory is an explanation of an aspect of the natural world and universe has been repeated, tested, and corroborated in accordance with the scientific method using accepted protocols of observation, measurement, and evaluation of the results. Thanks, Dictionary. But what this means, past all the very specific wording, is that a theory is THE explanation for how a particular thing works. So, like, the theory of gravity isn't just some wacky ideas as to why things fall down. It's a proven set of principles and information gathered from experiments. It's the same thing when people like Flat Earthers say round earth theory, like that means something. Or when the dumbest people in America say the theory of evolution, like that means you can now also teach creationism in schools. In both cases, these aren't some wacky ideas created by scientists because they want to control the planet by telling everyone it's round. Yeah, don't get how those two things are related. And persecute Christians, something that hasn't really been done in the Western world since Rome existed. Instead, these are things that have been rigorously investigated and tested over and over again, and what science believes now is extremely close to the truth, unless we just so happen to discover something that shifts the paradigm completely and throws out everything between 5,000 years and 250-ish years of some of the smartest people who have ever existed trying to disprove these things out the window. Now, the second is that scientists rarely if ever, speak in absolute terms about just about anything. And why is that? Well, because while right now, sure, we have what we're pretty sure is the truth and have very advanced tools to examine that, but we don't know it objectively. I mean, think, people thought the miasma theory, that germs spread by bad smells, was scientifically valid until we discovered viruses and bacteria. So while we almost 100% guarantee that this is the truth, almost means scientists don't talk in absolutes. Again, precise motherfucker. But this is used by people like the History Channel to make one of three things. Historically inaccurate TV dramas, World War II documentaries, and conspiracy theory shows that say the reason why the world sucks is because the Freemasons, and also aliens, visited the ancient Egyptians to help them build pyramids. It's like, holy shit, what a waste of discovering a new world. But anyways, History Channel will have an actual archaeologist on and then ask them, hey, you mind explaining why this hieroglyph 
looks like a Hemina chapter. Like, that's supposed to prove anything. And the archaeologists will say, well, based on what we can assume, that's actually them writing other over hieroglyphs because they didn't have the time to remove it before and the new pharaoh was coming to make sure they made their predecessor made their predecessor look like a dick. And, you know, they didn't have helicopters, so they didn't think it looked like anything. And then History Channel takes that to mean that the archaeologist was making a guess and will tell you that. Or they're truly both stupid and evil and are ignoring that. What the archaeologist is... What that archaeologist is simplifying is, based on what we can assume from these three dozen studies, I will now read to you verbatim 8,000 years of historical context I'm going to describe to you year by year, 25 forensic investigations I've lined up on this PowerPoint presentation, the entire field of archaeology who are here with me today, and my promise to commit seppuku if it's wrong, this is what happened. See, what people hear when a scientist says things like, well, as far as we can prove, far as we understand and most likely isn't admitting to not knowing anything it's accounting for bias and the possibility that maybe we fucked it up somewhere but with that now let's move on to the history so before we get started this episode doesn't really have an american only section for the history I know to some of you that's a deal breaker. You're sick little Amaribus that demand everything has to include America in some way. But it's not really relevant for this conversation. There's a really lot of history from an American perspective that isn't also just world history. And once again, we start in ancient humanity. Not the Stone Age this time, though, which is a really surprising change of pace. Instead, we begin with the forerunner of science, philosophy. As the study of truth and trying to decode reality, this is the closest thing science has to an ancestor. For a very long time, these two things were basically just synonymous. And being essentially the same time, give a century or two, ancient Greek and Chinese philosophy came about somewhere between 2600 and 2500 BC. And these philosophies will both go on to influence Western and Eastern philosophy respectively, and also show two focuses of science and development that withstand to this day. In ancient Greece, the focus of philosophy was finding the ultimate truth of reality with a very heavy focus on debate and rhetoric. While in China, the focus was largely on the social sciences, i.e. understanding people and self-improvement, with a heavy focus in, in particular on education. And unfortunately, this is the last time we're going to see the East in this timeline, because much of our history of modern science comes from the West. Why? Well, simply put, colonization, motherfucking other cultures for no reason, racism, and also being the center of power and money. You know, just like white people think. But anyways, by 2400 BC, Socratic teaching emerges in the West. Focus on knowledge being a necessity for a good life, and that everyone should learn philosophy and science. You know, which is kind of like, Eastern philosophy, but us in the West call this important because we have a collective boner for Socrates. But as part of this teaching, debate becomes more important, and empirical evidence wasn't seen as necessary, since the idea was that all knowledge could be gained through reasoning, you know, like a sigma male, and only beta bitch artisans and craftsmen needed hard numbers for anything. And, you know, this is also very reminiscent of how the humanities operate today. But, anyways... 
a century later, Aristotle tells Socrates to get fucked, which would have still been an insult because it insinuates Socrates is a bottom, by deciding that actually it's important to write down the shit you do and to also have a system to find truth and use actual hard numbers to back up your shit talk. Because this lets other philosophers more easily check your lurk. Because this lets other philosophers more easily check your work and learn without directly knowing you. He also reinforced the idea of inductive reasoning, that all reasoning should be built from measurement and observation and a pattern. Now, his scientific method was a three-step program, going as following. 1. Study what others have written. 2. Find a general consensus about what others think. 3. Perform a study of everything related to the topic, including measurements, and then form your own educated opinion on it. Which, hey, guess what? That's basically how I research these episodes, and is also the basics of doing research in the humanities. And to those of you who are in college right now, going, no it isn't, shut the fuck up. I'm trying to relate to the masses. Don't check my podcast numbers, there's definitely masses of people listening. But clearly, there's also some issues with this process. Now, while science continues to develop, the focus of this episode's history is specifically access to scientific information, public responses to science, and the scientific method, not science as a whole. Because if it was wholly fuck would this be long. But our last stop in the BCs is the Library of Alexandria. First in 200 BC was its introduction of library cataloging, which made peer-reviewing written work a lot easier and granted scientists and philosophers a massive storehouse of knowledge and a directory to find the right stuff that they needed. And the other date is 48 BC, when the Library of Alexandria was burned. And once you finish pouring one out for the homie, I'll explain why it happened. Okay, so Caesar was trying to chase down Pompeii into Egypt. Now, if you don't know what any of those words mean, I, I'm not going to help you. Get fucked. Now, the Egyptians, being aware he was coming, set up a blockade at Alexandria. And so Caesar burned the boats, which then spread to the port, which then caught the city on fire, which then spread to the library and so heavily damaged it and the knowledge within that it would never really fully recover. Yeah, fucking Romans. Speaking of Romans, after their collapse, which they fucking deserve for burning the library of Alexandria, science, according to pop culture, just completely stopped. However, this isn't the truth. While yes, a lot of knowledge was lost, a lot of it still remained. Mostly in the Islamic world. In the Middle East, much of the knowledge of the ancient Greeks remained, and because Islam prized knowledge, education, and discipline, much like Judaism, rather than destroying these writings for disagreeing with them, uh, cough, cough, Europeans, they used them to form a massive body of knowledge in science. At the same time in Europe, Latin becomes the language of both systems of power and knowledge, from religion to court to nobility and to science. And this was both because a lot of surviving documents were in Latin, also because it drew a direct connection to the Romans and to the dami mommy roma missing mindset of the Europeans, this meant legitimacy. And also on the practical end, because it was quickly becoming phased out for other languages and integrated and morphed into other tongues, but a widespread across Europe, it allowed for a long-distance communication of complex ideas in a common tongue that everyone could write instead of speaking. 
Now, the other thing is that in Europe, a lot of scientific data still survived. I'm not saying that all of it went away. And a lot of it was written in Latin, which is also why a lot of, like, rich people and churches were able to hold on to it, especially because churches were safe places to hide that information. But, anyways, given that during this period, a lot of scientific advancement was done by the Islamic areas of North Africa and the Middle East, and those are a lot easier and more relevant to today's topic, let's go through some more specific people and dates. Beginning in the period of 721 to 815 AD was Abu Shavir, the father of modern chemistry. Javir, compared to Europeans and Muslim alchemists at the time, thought that using speculative and superstitious concepts to explain chemical reactions and also in pursuit of things like lead into gold was cringe. So he dragged alchemy, kicking and screaming, away from the ideas of connection to God and natural spirits, masculine and feminine energy, and being highly tied to ritual and star signs, and into the world of empirical, and into the world of the empirical by creating a system of highly controlled experimentation with elements to discover what they actually did, and leaving essentially none of it to speculation while using the Aristotle method of it, of induction. And from this, he renamed his particular field chemistry to separate it from alchemy. You know something that Europe wouldn't do for a few centuries still. Following in 1851 to 934, we have Al-Rawi. Al-Rawi. I'm going to apologize for pronunciation. I'm going to try. I've heard enough uh, um, Arabic names to try, but I'm not going to be good at this. Uh, who widely introduced the idea of peer review into the Islamic world of science in his book, Ethics of the Physician. In this book, he said that doctors should document their procedures and allow them to be scrutinized by others to determine the possibility of malpractice, the effectiveness of the treatment, or if the treatment and the ailment were even related in the first place. You know, like your doctor suggesting a mercury-filled glass butt plug to help you with your cough? If they're not going to put that up for peer review, in all likelihood, they just want to watch. Now, he also recognized this process as important to not only not only to be in medicine, but in other forms of science as well. The peer review, not watching someone stick a butt plug in. Also, if your doctor does that, they should probably be arrested. Then we have in 965 to 1040, Ibn Al-Haytham. Al yeah. A scholar, that if you're a real fucking nerd about light, vision, and the precursors to the camera you're familiar with, created a new scientific method to better fit with the times. He believed that science was the quest to find ultimate truth about reality, and that the only way forward towards this truth we would one day find is to be deeply skeptical of everything until you found evidence, and be constantly asking questions. While today, this is used to deny trans people existing, despite clear evidence to the contrary, and by pedophiles with conservative talk shows, and the fact that you don't know who I mean is the point. At this point in history, it was in reaction to saying, to people saying, because God said so, as the answer to everything. So it wasn't co-opted by assholes yet. It was used by, like, actual smart people. But, what was his scientific method? Well, you begin with an explicit problem, based on observation and experimentation. Like, how my wife keeps calling me a piece of shit. So next, you test or criticize 
a hypothesis with experimentation. Like how I think it's because she's a bitch. Then I interpret that and come to a conclusion, preferably, preferably with math or something else empirical without bias. You know, which is where my analogy that I made, just so I can make a boomer joke, kind of breaks down. But finally, you publish your findings. Which is very similar to the modern system, except under this, you don't necessarily need to actually change your hypothesis and keep experimenting until you find the answer. The answer. Like, if you're trying to figure out why water evaporates and your results come back with, well, it's definitely not water goblins, then you can just publish a paper that says that the water goblins aren't why there's less water in a cup after it's been in the heat for a while. And that's just, like, perfectly fine. Modern science, you can't get away with that. You need to find an actual reason. Also, you probably wouldn't still be practicing actual research if you said there's water goblins. Um, anyways, now for two more kind of minor players. And not that their lives were less interesting or that they did less scientifically, philosophically, or medically. Just for our purposes, they contributed, but not as much as the others. First is Al-Biruni in 973-1048, who contributed a ton for the world, but for our purposes also contributed the idea that science needs to replicate many hundreds, if not thousands of times, and that the resulting collection of data can be used to reach a kind of common sense average because people are still biased and also instruments can be really fucked up because remember this isn't the era of anatomically perfect instruments and materials that have been proven beyond a doubt to be 100% pure glass or iron or whatever and also these instruments weren't made in factories they were made by individual craftsmen craftsmen that either make things differently that can affect the measurements of a device or can have a real off day or a real awesome day and create something way out of whack from their normal instruments. So it's important to widen the base of data as much as possible. And the other player, Ibn Sina, also called Avicenna, to us useless fucking whiteies like me, was a polymath, meaning someone really fucking good at a lot of shit. And again, Someone with massive contributions to science of the modern world, but for this topic in particular, introduced and proliferated the idea that there's only two ways to reach consensus on any topic within science, and you know, by and large, outside of science as well. Those being induction and experimentation. Writing a really persuasive essay about how, actually, yes, there are water goblins, you just can't see them because you forgot to do Salat one time when you were 13 and getting a handy from the girl that you like, might have worked in the humanities, that shit wasn't going to fly in science. You need evidence of the water goblins if you want to float that as a theory. But the contributions of both of these men would have massive influence on science for centuries to come. But going back to Europe, we have another person to cover right before the cusp of the Renaissance. Roger Bacon. Now, while the Islamic world is having its revitalization of science, Europe was having a massive revitalization of religion, with much of its focus on stabbing each other right in the grundle over minor differences in who is in charge of what patch of uninhabitably thick with ten seas forests, and why Jesus comes like a geyser Christ supports their side in the fight. And the Catholic Church, as power-hungry as ever, uh, you know, they are descended from Romans after all, was on the warpath to suppress anything that disagreed with them. Making this era, you know, kind of hard for science. 
But despite that, during Bacon's time in 1214 through 1294, he helped European science to catch up to the Islamic world with the introduction of the hypothesis, observational science, and experimentation over reasoning things over and seeing if the Romans agreed. He also kept highly meticulous notes, allowing for others to look over his work, even after his death. But then in the 1300s, the power base of science changed. In Europe, the Renaissance begins, a period of quote-unquote revival of intellectualism in the West. And in the Islamic world, the beginning of the decline of the House of Knowledge, the university that sparked and fueled the Islamic pursuit of science, began. Now, while the House of Knowledge did decline, there's actually a lot of debate about the Renaissance's existence in the first place. Because, well, yes, it seems like things started to advance very fast around this time, and the number of polymaths increased. There's actually a lot of belief among historians that instead a lot of the earlier sciences between the fall of Rome and the 1300s was just suppressed or lost, and that the number of advances in science, art, and philosophy are much older and are just misattributed to people in the 1300s. And why would this happen? Well, because in short, everyone with European blood loves a fascism. Which is barely a joke. But that is to say that Europeans at the time of the Renaissance got a real fucking boner for Rome and lamented that its collapse was the worst thing to have ever happened to humanity, ever, and that the only way we could ever return to better days was to copy everything Rome ever did. Ignoring and intentionally writing out about 1100 years of history as the Dark Ages in the process. But regardless of all that, the 1300s were unique in the wealth of coastal Mediterranean cities, allowing for the intellectuals of their time and area to become true Renaissance men, with all this new free time and patrons willing to buy their services and help to share their ideas. And during the Renaissance in 1436, we also have the invention of the printing press, which, amongst some early porno mags and some you know, Garfield comics, also allowed for boring-ass scientific and academic writing to become more widespread and easily available not only to nobility and scientists, but also to the wealthy layperson that could read Latin, which caused a further increase in science, especially amongst the wealthy. Since investing in science would signal to other rich assholes, you care a lot about it, and therefore you understand it, and are also an intellectual, which doesn't have to be and usually wasn't true. It also showed that you had money to spend on something that actually wouldn't necessarily even close to making money back, implying that you had a lot of wealth just to throw around to people. And in 1452 to 1519, we have the lifespan of Leonardo da Vinci, an important man for the influence of science and culture, and science communication overall. Because on top of being very interested in and studying science, he was also an artist. Da Vinci used art to communicate his scientific thoughts, experiments, and studies, which helped people understand how they worked and also allowed for replication of his ideas. Well, at least the ones he wanted to actually work. He also would routinely draw the diagrams of weapons wrong, so if someone built them, they'd catastrophically fail, because Da Vinci was kind of a pacifist. But he also used science to improve his art, studying the science of musculature to paint more realistically, and studying chemistry to find different pigments to display different textures and colors in his work. Now, this combo made science much more approachable to non-intellectuals and also made them realize the importance in their lives. 
following into the 1530s, Europe once again finally catches up with the Islamic world with the empirical movement taking root. Focused on the idea that all knowledge and truth can be derived from what can be detected, sensed, and measured, and that if you can't sense, detect, or measure it, then it probably doesn't exist. To which the Catholic Church cleared its throat and said, Excuse me, gentlemen, does it smell like fucking heresy in here? And the church started pimp-slapping heretics, aka scientists, left and right, which, as you can imagine, hurt the image of science quite a bit to set themselves up as the opposite of faith, and then when they started getting slapped around, stuck to their guns. But from the modern but still, from the modern perspective, good on them. Seeming to double down comes Francis Bacon from between the period of 1561 and 1626. He reinforced the importance of induction in science and further believed that all discovery in science should be built upon the back of observation, experimentation, analysis, and inductive reasoning, and that evidence uncovered during experiments should be used to eliminate conflicting theories about reality, which you can imagine how the church felt about that. Uh... Galileo, between 1564 and 1642, similarly contributed to science, even being called the father of modern science by people like Einstein and Hawking. He relied heavily on mathematical theorems and observations, including double-checking his math with observational evidence and letting other scientists check his results. He also understood that math wasn't always a perfect match to the evidence, and taking into account every variable was almost impossible, if not entirely impossible at all. He also introduced the concept of universal standardized measurements, which is fucking insane that until this time in Europe and parts of the Islamic sphere of influence, there wasn't required consistency between measurements. You could have one person in Norway measuring in length of his wiener and someone in Cairo measuring the length of objects by the depth of patience he has remaining for his goddamn children, and these two might be able to access each other's work and figure out what the fuck any of that meant. But famously, he would be imprisoned in his home for the assertion of the heliocentric model, challenging the church's position that Earth was the center of the universe. Which, at the time, I don't think really uh, changed public opinion too much about science or religion, but uh, yeah, and internally in like the church it caused some, some issues. Uh, born in the year of Galileo's death, which the fucking devil-worshipping child fear hormone gobbling scientist will tell you this is a coincidence, why are you in my home? Isaac Newton is born. By his death in 1726, in addition to his discoveries around light and gravity, Newton believed that actually Science needs both induction and deduction to find truth. A deduction is the process of finding a reasonable conclusion, assuming all evidentiary statements are true. It's like the classic one is, spiders have eight legs, tarantulas have eight legs, therefore tarantulas are spiders. Now, reasonably, most people who understand the difference are quick to point out issues about deductive reasoning. But I think Newton has a point. Like, for example, how are you going to inductively reason out something that is, by its nature, constantly changing? Like, for example, how do you inductively reason climate change, you know, for a modern example? Because the pattern that's built up is more chaotic weather patterns with higher highs and lower lows. So how do you see this chaos and pick out a pattern and come up with climate change? Meanwhile, with deduction, you have 
These gases trap heat. We've been using a lot of these gases. The Earth takes heat from the sun. Therefore, the Earth is warming, and it's our fault. And even in induction, and even in inductive reasoning, if you took a pattern of increasing global temperature, there's no way to come to a single conclusion that no one knows already. Anyways, following in the 1660s is the founding of the first of the scientific societies. Meant to protect the sanctity of science with an army of influential and wealthy scientists and their patrons. The very first among them is the Royal Society of London, which was aimed at naturalist philosophers and physicians. And beginning back then, and even continuing on to today, their motto is Nullius in Verba, which means take no one's word for it, and represents their dedication to not bow down to authoritarian decrees of what science should be, and to always check all findings with experimentation. And let me tell you, this got the Catholic Church seeing heresy again. Although this time, given their waiting power and also the people making sure they stay rich, really fucking loving science lately, they can't really do anything about it besides, you know, like, bless some kids to pass the time. Anyways, in 1665, the Royal Society of London launches its own journal called Philosophical Transactions, which presents peer review to scientists of the day and also endorses and calls for the funding of sciences through these societies as well as through government and private sources. But the first actual peer-reviewed journal wouldn't be released until 1731, when the Royal Society of Edinburgh releases their journal Medical Essays and Observations. You know, fucking riveting and creative. Scientists really need to hire artists to name things. Holy shit. But anyways, at the dawn of the 1800s marked a new age in science once again. This time in the communication of science to the public. And why was this? Well, because as the middle class began to form and develop, they had free time and education to become interested in the sciences. Meaning that there was an audience for scientists to make public demonstrations of scientific principles to teach them. If you've talked to a science communicator or a scientist, their biggest joy in life is someone asking them to explain how their field of science works and them shutting the fuck up and being entirely enthralled and amazed as about two decades of science-ease slips out of their mouth. On top of having an audience, the scientific community was getting really fucking tired of having to do what the upper class wanted, since they were the ones bankrolling them for the most part. So by including the middle class, public support turned towards science and gives scientists a bit more leverage when they ask for funding, and also made things like science societies, universities, public fundraising organizations, and governments a lot more interested in taking a chance in funding research, given that the you know, public would be interested in the results as well, even if they didn't really understand what they were. And then in 1826, with the invention of the first permanent photographs developed by Joseph, oh shit, I'm going to apologize about the last name here, Joseph Nisafore Nipes? Oh, I even wrote in the script, sorry about the pronunciation. Science's ability to communicate with the general public as well as other scientists is massively boosted. Now, instead of needing to be good at drawing or a very descriptive writer, you could instead just take pictures of exactly what you mean, and you could get your ideas out there in a much easier to process way that was also a lot faster. You know, even though cameras at the time were slow as fuck anyways. 
and this would be later improved upon in 1888 when Louis Le Prince, why did I have a hard time with that one, uh, created the first camera that could capture moving pictures. But anyways, in 1831, the first meeting of the British Science Association occurs in New York City. Why? No fucking clue, but it does. Uh, but this is to discuss and establish national attention towards science. Assumedly in the UK, but maybe in the US, since that's what they were doing it. It would be weird for the British society to be talking about US engagement in science. But it would be weird if they were talking about UK engagement in science. While in America, I don't know. Whatever. But adding to the popularity of science is when in 1860 occurring under the watch of the same BSA, the scientist Thomas Huxley debates the Bishop of Oxford, Samuel Wilberforce, about evolution. And this debate was popular not only because of the recently unveiled theory of evolution put forth by Charles Darwin a year earlier, that was widely and hotly debated in the public and also in science, but also because this debate got heated and fucking fast including when a reply to a comment made about how debasing it is to say humans are related to apes instead of being the divine work of God, Huxley said that he actually wouldn't be ashamed to be a relative of apes, but would be ashamed if he found out he was related to a man of the cloth that attempted to obscure the truth. And, oof, good burn. This is why nowadays a Wilberforce is a unit of measurement for how painful a fucking sick burn is with one Wilberforce being roughly the equivalent of being told that the guy you're talking to would be more likely to invite Bongo the chimpanzee to Thanksgiving dinner, rather than you, a man of God. But this debate skyrocketed the popularity of science as the Western world was in the midst of another age of revitalized intellectualism and religious skepticism. You know, like r slash atheist. But what they saw was a man of God getting fucking dunked on by a scientist, so, yeah. Now, also something happening in this time was that Latin was slipping as the lingua franca of science. And while it had been fading for centuries, this time period was really the nail in the coffin. Because now, some of the biggest powers in the world at the time, namely France, Britain, and Germany, had a deep interest in science. So now scientists the world over were beginning to use French, German, or English in their writing, and by the time 1900 came around, German became the dominant language as its global influence began to wax, and Britain and France began to wane. Which, I know, that's, that's real ominous foreshadowing. Also, between now and his death in 1994, Sir Karl Popper helped to establish the concept of pseudoscience and define it throughout his career. Now, see, in the first half of the 20th century, a lot of science was being co-opted by the softer social sciences. You know, that couldn't really be proven in any meaningful way at the time because they lacked the knowledge base and technology in fields like psychology and sociology. See, but Sir Popper saw a problem with this. Seeing as a lot of these fields used conjecture rather than rigorous testing, he worried that it would damage the reputation of science and also alter how science is done for the worst. So, in addition to popularizing that science isn't infallible, which is obviously granted to popularize, especially considering what you all at home know is looming, he also drew distinction between science and pseudoscience. Science being done through theory, refutation, experimentation, and eventually accepted scientific fact given enough rigorous testing. Pseudoscience became defined as anything else that couldn't be tested 
using the scientific method or defined a science that was still trying to claim being scientific. Which is why things at the time, like psychology, were pseudosciences, and why today things like cryptozoology, parapsychology, and whitewashed traditional medicines, deeply entwined with a real people's religion sold and convenient to buy at Walmart packaging, are all pseudoscience. And, you know, unfortunately for me personally, why herbalism is also a pseudoscience. And, excuse me if I go on a quick tangent, it's my podcast, um, but I'm one of those people that likes herbal medicine and using them for, like, spiritual, like, ritual purposes. I mean, come on, I've been in this religion episode, I'm a dirty pagan heretic. But, but it bothers me, not because I want it to be real, but because modern medicines often come from plants or derived from chemicals that can be found in plants. And the fact that there hasn't really been interest in researching herbal medicine is annoying. I mean, obviously, if they came back and said, it's bullshit, I'd stop talking my shit about loving it as a medical supplement, because it wouldn't do anything and might harm you. Speaking of which, if you're going to use herbs in addition to Western medicine, be safe about it, you fucking freak. Talk to your doctor about it. Don't just go ham. But I think that herbalism and modern medicine have something in common, and herbal medicine is kind of just like the shittier version, but, you know, until there's actual research into it, no way to back that up. Anyways, in 1933, both photography and cameras begin to evolve very, very quickly, which allows for scientists to publish pictures with their observations a lot easier. This includes microscopic images and cameras designed to take these pictures that are still larger than your wiener. Now, depending on who you are, that might be a 2 or 3 Wilbur Force, or a 0. But this development means that scientists are able to communicate to each other much easier, and science communication becomes exceptionally easier. And, uh, oh boy. Um, so now we get to the part that no one likes to remember, and if you do, you're a fucking weirdo. Uh, the 1940s. And uh, while I'm not going to go into all the horrors of science going on during the 40s, because, oh, that could be an entire show in and of itself, such as, uh, you know, Mangala, the Twin Studies, Unit 731, the Manhattan Project, all the many virology trials done in prisoners of war, experiments in gulags, chemical weapons, the atom bomb, etc., 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 understand that coming out of the other side of World War II, science was in a, a, a rough place, let's say. Its reputation was real fucked up, and a lot of people were resentful. Either that science and scientists were responsible for some of the biggest horrors of human history, and also contributed greatly to wartime crime and suffering, or that they were sorry about it. And given the nations that asked them to do these things aren't ones to look a scapegoat in its beady, stupid fucking goat eyes, they kind of just let this resentment result in the lowered interest in and funding of scientific endeavors. Others, they very happily took in war criminals on for things like rocket propulsion, weapons, and also vaccines and medical science where they, quote-unquote, had no idea how they got such such accurate data. Which, you know, really helped to fuel that resentment. Uh, and seeing all this, Dr. Walter Bodman produced a report that suggested, hey, maybe if we tell the public what we're working on and publicize our work, they won't get so cagey around us when they realize 90% of science is telling another scientist that actually this hormone means this instead of, you know, that we kill the planet regularly. And so a lot of scientists began to publish more often, and this updraft caused the COPUS, C 
Committee on the Public Understanding of Science, and also a number one copium supplier, to form in the UK and begin to produce grants for reach-out activities to teach the normie science and to take it as serious and important, but to not be a threatening field. Following this into the 1960s and you know all the way through to the 70s, science communication takes off with the most common way being something called poster sessions, which are basically like high school science fairs, but you know, with actual science, where early science communicators presented their posters full of data and cool pictures to keep your short fucking attention span away from your lumpy balls for a few seconds. And this became an incredibly popular way to teach science that would remain popular even outside of middle schools until nearly the end of the 70s. Also in the 60s, Thomas Kuhn, also in the 60s, Thomas Kuhn, I hope that's how you pronounce that, I'm sorry, uh, a philosopher of science and historian would create the idea of paradigms to add to both the scientific method and scientific philosophy. And what is a paradigm? Well, that essentially, if a theory is tested enough, it will become the dominant theory and will eventually become accepted automatically as truth amongst the scientific community and will both no longer be questioned and also cause scientists to work within its constraints. And this is very important because it essentially posits that, hey, we think we know jack everything, but what if we actually know fuck all because we've built all of science off of paradigms we got wrong in the 1600s? Scary, huh? Now, also, keep in mind, this is also an exercise to show that scientists are still biased, so, you know, that part of it isn't actually super terrifying, but hey, focus on the big, flashy, we've been wrong the whole time. But as science became more popular again, we get another massive innovation in science communication with the first big mainstream TV show in 1980. Not like, ever, the first science TV show. Carl Sagan's Cosmos, A Personal Journey, where Carl Sagan teaches people about astrophysics principles and space using common language, previously unseen graphics of photos, and examples using real-world everyday things. And this made Carl Sagan one of the most beloved and well-known astronomers, astrophysicists, and science communicators not only of the 1980s, but of all time. And he would go on to inspire generations of science communicators and young scientists. Uh, three years later, the philosophy surrounding science is introduced to another concept by Paul Federbin. Uh, the idea of anything goes. Often described as a scientific anarchist, and this is not in the Nazi way, Federbin makes the assertion that scientific discovery is uneven and unsteady, and that because of that, having a strict adherence to a scientific method slows down our advancement because we become hyper-fixated on sticking to this paradigm rather than following in the path of the scientists of the past who made up the rules as they went along. Basically, we're going to lose the momentum of scientific progress and slow our rate of advancement because we're too lenient on these rules that are hard to use in relation to some of the places science is going. You know, like, for example, how the fuck do you run an experiment on a black hole? Something that, mind you, until May 2022 had only been theoretically possible. Up until that point, math accounted for them, but we had no observations. And the same could be said with time and gravity, two highly relative things. How do you run experiments on gravity on planets millions of miles away without changing rules? 
which I get, but I'm also not going to pretend that I'm uh, smart enough to communicate anything else about that, including uh, being against it. But the field changes even more with the advent of the internet, with the first open access scientific journal being created in 1987 called Flora Online, which, unlike other journals, wasn't published in German. Why is that? Well, because starting in the late 80s and continuing on to the 90s and beyond, English begins to serve German as the language of science. And it had been for a while. And why is that? Well, because after two world wars, the instability of the 20th century for much of the world, and the Cold War, suddenly there were a lot of motherfuckers speaking English fucking everywhere. And the primarily English-speaking nation was... And the primarily English-speaking nation of America was vomiting and shitting its culture onto an unexpecting planet every second of every day. So English began rising, and German was losing popularity because of a... And one, connotations. And also because Germany began to take more of a backseat to science, given that it was both divided between East and West, and a lot of its scientific powerhouse brains were dead, in prison, and also Nazis or already in America or Russia, and also Nazis. And no other language was in a place to assert English because of the motherfucking of Eurasia. But getting back to science communication at the end of this timeline, we have the emergence of Bill Nye as a science communicator in 1993. Now, while he was already an engineer and scientist before his show, he was hired as a science communicator to explain science to kids on Bill Nye the Science Guy, a show so popular that if you were that if you are from the 90s or early 2000s, you just had the theme song playing in your head in its entirety. Now, it became massively popular, and from my understanding, it's still shown in schools when your teacher's having a rough fucking day and they just want to chill out a bit. But since the show's run, Bill Nye has remained prominent as a science education advocate, science communicator, political science communicator, and climate change combatant. Now, his spearheading of the modern love of science was massively helped by the first digital encyclopedia, created in 1994 by Britannica. And this essentially free access to massive databases of scientific data information was good, yeah, but let me level with you. This was not in digestible bits of pop science like a BuzzFeed article or in simplified terms like Carl Sagan or Bill Nye would give you with an entire episode meant for kids to understand talking about a single idea. These were the unfiltered words of science, meant for the eyes of people who understand them. And much like looking up large wiener in a skirt with the safe search off, you'll be forever changed by the raw, unfiltered data and will either really, really love it or end up traumatized. And this is the beginning of some of the issues surrounding scientific literacy, because before this, science was an insular field. You could only really get into science if you were an academic, wealthy, or both. Shut the fuck up, train. I don't know if you can hear that, but... Uh, but now these scum-sucking K-12 kids could come home from school and get on their computer and just look at femble... I, I mean, science. Definitely science. Without any kind of parental supervision. And this overload causes the first generation of science communication crusaders to rise, who are people who know what those scary words mean that are willing to translate to a smooth-brained masses. 
and this leads directly to the proliferation of science communication in the early 2000s that democratizes a love of science like never before, with blogs, podcasts, blogs, and early YouTubers focusing on science and scientific concepts and sharing them with the world in ways that make sense to the common viewers, more and more people become interested. But this is also the period of the other two crusade generations of science communicators. First being the generation during the period who became focused less on just explaining the information and more on creating a dialogue between audience and science. Where they basically present their topic to the public and then ask them to talk about it amongst themselves with other creators and to other members of the public. But then the third generation comes along, one we are still in, where science communicators encourage the public to be the first ones to speak. Rather than being like, hey, here's this thing and everything you need to know about it, what do you think? The emphasis changed to, hey, what do you like about science, little Billy? Instead of screaming stranger danger and tossing his computer out the window like his parents taught him, Billy would then reply with, space, Mr. Internet Man. And then the funny Internet Man will talk about space and the Furby paradox and the heat death of the universe for the amusement of an audience. Some examples of the second generation would be people like the Mythbusters in 2003, being one of the most popular science communication shows ever, as the reason why science communication is largely done the way it is now. It's also a massive personal reason why I love science. Now, it would also include Neil deGrasse Tyson, who came about in 2009 with his rise of prominence. Now, the reason for his rise is a combination of a few things. And first of all, he's very approachable, and he's charismatic, and he's also very clearly passionate about science while still having enough of, like, a STEM brain scientist vibe for us brain-broken humanities folk to assume he knows what he's talking about. And is also one of the biggest STEM lords ever, so he appeals to people in STEM. Not to mention, he has written a ton of books, hosted TV shows, made massive monetary and academic contributions to both science and education, and has a really, really successful career, and has a good amount of money. Now, why, now, why do I bring all that up for him, but nothing like that for Mythbusters? Well, because Tyson has also found himself in some hot water at times for, you know, both the timing and the nature of some of his takes, and also his behavior on Twitter, and some of the shows he's been on. And I bring that up because I know that if I don't, someone will find this episode and be like, how dare you not mention that time he talked about school shooting in a really tone-deaf way on Twitter after mentioning his name. I really, I think he's done great things for science, and a lot of his dip in popularity isn't because of that, because he is one of the biggest motherfucking, wife-cuckling stem lords I have ever seen get so popular. And we aren't used to that. So, you know, while it's cool at first, some of us who are hypercharged be constantly political, hypercritical, and constantly aware of aesthetic timing and connotation, a stem lord of that level becomes hard to deal with when we realize, oh, the only thing he literally gives more of an more than an actual grain of a fuck about is science, and we'll find any way to be the man with the wrinkliest, biggest brain in the room. Awesome. And that, because of that, he also tends to say his opinions about things, like a super smart anime protagonist in shit he knows nothing about, which, if you know anything about STEM people, yeah, yeah, that's just 
how they act. But anyways, most of modern science communication has moved online with independent creators, online video making companies, and other forms of bite-sized entertaining science. You know, with some of my favorite prominent ones being people like Matt Pat, I fucking know, laugh at me, the Green Brothers, Vsauce, SciShow, and Kyle Hill. But that's all for the history, let's go to the modern day. Or as we should call it, the issues, because we all vaguely know where science is today, the same place it has been for decades. And what I mean by that? Well, science today is a slow, lumbering giant that seems to be filled with contradicting information, walls of impenetrably dense vocabulary that requires three different science, the easier science dictionaries, and a science to English dictionary to understand, and with fast-moving parasites feeding off the confusion scurrying all over it. And on top of all this, modern science, as we have begun to really examine a lot of our social structures and institutions, looks a lot like those boogeymen, including the saints of imperialism, white supremacy, and the millennia of fucked up history attributed to it. And as we've really investigated why we know things about medical science, for example, we crack open history books to find page after page of Nazi, Soviet, and Japanese imperial scientists being pardoned and their work experimenting on the live, unwilling victims being implemented in exchange. And that's just the stuff that's like on the surface. We go further back and see entire fields of science dedicated to racial superiority rhetorics like phrenology, studying the shape of the skull to say black people are meant to be subservient, which, you know, obviously is false, and many beloved scientists being firm believers in it even after it was debunked as pseudoscientific racist garbage. And even before then, we see mistreatment of Native American, Black, Romani, Irish, and other minority women by white scientists as they experimented with surgeries, fetuses, and venereal diseases without anesthetic or permission. And for fuck's sake, there's a whole chapter of U.S. history where Native American women were being sterilized. Not just to erase them, but also because scientists wanted to know if it was possible. And like, fucking Jesus Christ. Or, you know, you could go even further back. The whitewashing of science, ignoring of scientific advancement from the Far East and Islam in favor of European exceptionalism and idolization of the slave-driving, kid-fucking ethno-fascists in the form of the Romans. Even the use of English in 98% of studies today is looked at with scrutiny because it forces people to learn a language that across the planet has been used by people to invade, colonize, and cold war their ass into local politics. And sure, English as a mud language might be a good choice because it can adapt to new add-ons easily and there are words because of that with no precise translation that might make it necessary. That doesn't mean that people should stop noticing this unbalanced presentation of the language of science or pointing out that hey, some people have a hard fucking time learning languages in general, and English is a son of a bitch to learn. I mean, trust me, I'm one of those fucks that just cannot stick new languages in my brain to save my life. And so what are some of the other problems plaguing science? Well, for one, in the modern day especially, it's dealing with a double-edged sword. Science is seen as a reliable trump card. You can say, well, that's what science says, and most people will go, uh... Well, then, maybe, but I disagree with you emotionally or philosophically. And now you can give them a 
good old four Wilberforce burn. And while this is good on one hand because it shows science is respected and believed, it's also bad. Because people lie a lot. So with a dizzying amount of real information about science and a ton of real experts, it's easier for fake experts shouting nonsense to also get in and get confused for legit by the public. On top of that, because scientific literacy isn't often a requirement in journalism, decades of snazzy news headlines have further confused things. Scientist says beans cause cancer. Throw away your lima bean cans before it's too late. One day, and the next saying, scientists say eat only beans when you have cancer. What the fuck is wrong with you, you beanless whore? Based off of two unrelated studies, where one says, hey, sulfites found in farts caused by beans kills cancer in a lab, and another says, hey, this pesticide we put on beans sure does cause a lot of ass cancer, especially when mixed with these fucking bean sulfites. And, yes, this is a real example, not me making shit up for once. But all this causes people to act in one of two ways. Deny anything science outright because they don't get it and don't want to risk being lied to and don't want to think about it, or believe whatever science agrees with you and ignore everything else regardless of the content or context. Which is the other problem. See, because of worldwide disinformation and misinformation campaigns opening science up to the public, forcing scientists to answer questions about politics and religion, which, as we know, is not their fucking job, and the proliferation of outrage and assertism trending on social media, the trust people have in science is in sharp decline, decreasing from 40% to 29% in a period of two years, either from 2019 to 2021 or 2014 to 2016. Because of all the above, science gets lumped into one of those institutions filled with talking heads and an ocean of talking heads we're constantly confronted with. And yes, that's a metal fucking image. And yes, I know, I'm not any better. Sometimes you just gotta admit when you're part of the problem. I mean, this whole podcast is my coping strategy for life. But all of this means that people view science more and more as something within the realm of opinion and faith, like politics and culture, rather than a concerted effort from thousands of years of STEM brains to create a process as close to finding empirical truth, truth as possible. And then COVID, which put science on the front lines of people's minds, and it showed us how science was really done for the first time in most of our lives. And it wasn't a flattering look, like anyone wearing Cookie Monster pajamas in public. We saw for the first time science telling us, hey, this is what's up with COVID, and then two months later a new dude says, actually that was wrong, this is what's up, for two fucking years. So, seeing these disagreements and corrections, most of us brain-broken pieces of shit saw science happening and gathered around and started placing bets on who's going to totally own everyone else in the marketplace of ideas. To which most actual scientists said, what the fuck are you doing? And we, and we replied, he thinks COVID does this, kill him so I can own the conservatives on TikTok. Because legit scientists disagree all the fucking time, and as they learn, they realize previous information was wrong and contradictory, and they correct it. And we see that as fighting when they see that as finding the truth. But, yeah, that's where we are, so let's, let's go to the opinions. So, uh, we are doing a political section this time, uh, just opinions, because fuck politics, and, you know, also fuck you.
No, it's actually because it would literally be the exact opposite of what I just said. You turn around and ask what people's political opinions on science are in an episode where I'm trying to say that science isn't political. So instead, let's start by going over some hot-button science-related topics in a few fields. First is the biomedical sciences. And we're starting off with the safety of GMOs, which has been turned into a controversy by pseudoscientific granola capitalists. You know, the people telling you to drink raw water and that they put cancer in your anxiety pills and that you just need to go outside and also buy their product. Now, the scientists have been studying this since the 90s and for the most part haven't found any health issues that can come from GMOs, with 88% of scientists in agreement that they're safe and assumedly the other 12% not yet satisfied with the studies. Uh, also, for context, GMOs are genetically modified organisms, mostly plant crops, mostly plant crops, that have new DNA strands added to their DNA sequence artificially for some new effect, like increased yield. And if you think about it for a moment, this is probably safe, because right? humans don't absorb DNA from our food, so this shouldn't be an issue. Uh, but regardless, only 37% of adults think that they're safe. Next is the use of animals in research. Now, this actually doesn't require much explanation. It is also pretty self-explanatory as why it's controversial. 47% uh, of U.S. adults are okay with this, as are 89% of scientists. Which, hey, stem brain. It makes logical sense to test on animals before people, because human trials are fucking dangerous and hard to control. And also, hey, that's some Nazi shit when you're talking about medical research. So, next is pesticides in food and if that is safe. And 68% of scientists say it's safe, and 28% of adults believe. Why? Why are scientists in disagreement about something so abjectly fucking terrifying? Well, I mean, first, this is from 2015, before we really found out that all of us have a cocktail of pesticides floating around in our blood that is at a level that is concerning. And if you're just learning about that, whoops, I'm sorry. I guess you didn't know we were on the worst possible fucking timeline. Secondly, it's because when used properly, pesticides are less than a single parts per million in the food that we eat, which is not enough to hurt you. It's just more recently, scientists are ringing alarm bells because pesticides aren't being properly used, disposed of, cleaned off, and are also sticking longer because companies are making new ones that gets into your body easier. All of that is on companies making it, by the way, not on the scientists. Now is the theory of evolution, which, my god, I'm not explaining this, you should know what that is. 65% of adults believe in evolution, and 98% of scientists do. And why is this so high? Well, because it's a paradigm. It's been so rigorously, been so rigorously tested, it's kind of useless to dedicate time to disproving it anymore. Okay, and finally, is childhood vaccines being required? Just like mumps, flu vaccines, etc., to ensure that your child makes it into adulthood. Well, at least won't die from illness, but might die because some people are evil. Yep, mask off a little bit in this one. But only 68% of adults think it's required because those same goddamn granola capitalists tell them vaccines are filled with poison. The best way to protect your children is to homeschool them. Which also, by the way, is a great way to protect them from sex, ever, with anyone. Anyways, 86% of scientists agree that childhood vaccines are good. And now we move on to climate, energy, and space science. First, is climate change our fault? 
while taking into account our massive use of fossil fuels, which creates greenhouse gases, our massive fucking reflective cities pumping heat, radiation into the sky, and our insistence on using fire and explosives at every possible opportunity, one might assume, just with some common sense, that, yeah, yes indeed it is. And scientists agree, with 87% saying yes. While for most U.S. adults, only half believe that humans cause climate change. Which, hey, in the 1960s, most adults thought that smoking didn't cause cancer. So, you know. Second, is the world's population too big? Now, 82% of scientists say yes. And before you get your pantaloons in a twist and get World War II flashbacks, this, that, that is not what they are suggesting. Scientists are just looking at population trends and simulated maximum shelter, food, and water usable on Earth and seeing, oh, fuck, we don't have enough. Meanwhile, 59% of U.S. adults agree, and given they aren't necessarily scientists, that, that scares me a bit more. Next is all the things for energy concerns. These are nuclear power plants, offshore drilling, biofuel, and fracking. Nuclear power plants, which are actually extremely safe when upkept, which basically means in the U.S. they are about as safe as a vault with a comically large padlock used to keep it shut, are favored by 65% of scientists and 45% of U.S. adults. Offshore drilling, being, you know, oil drilling done in the ocean, is favored by 32% of scientists and 52% of adults. Using biofuel, which is, you know, organic matter to generate electricity, 78% of scientists are cool with it, and 68% of adults. And finally, fracking. Uh, you know, the process of forcefully breaking up chunks of the fucking earth with jets of water and chemicals to drink up that sweet, sweet black gold hiding inside of it. Oh, which, in the process, causes earthquakes, by the way. Uh, but 39% of adults want more of it, and 31% of scientists. And finally is space technology. First, are space stations a good idea? And scientists and the public are actually in agreement on this one. Mostly. 68% of scientists are cool with it, as are 64% of the public, which to me sounds like it's lukewarm at best in both cases. Meanwhile is the idea that we need more astronauts, which is very, very unpopular. Um, you see, 59% of U.S. adults believe that we need more astronauts for our space programs, while 47% of scientists do. Basically, space is becoming a little bit easier for people to uh, operate in, so we need less people that are, like, peak mental and physical condition to go into space. What do all these opinions mean? Scientists are smarter than us, but they also don't ever entirely agree with each other, and it's not a big deal. You know, even in cases where it's something like, we should really motherfuck the planet, some scientists will readily say yes to that. And is it because they're dumb? In a way, yes. It's more that they're a fucking stem lord and seeing empirical benefit are just like, eh, we'll deal with the consequences when they come up. Or, eh, acceptable losses. And other scientists will have a, you know, adult conversation about it and convince them eventually of like, no, 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 no. We need to not do that. But when comparing scientists and society, we aren't too different from each other in a lot of cases. But, you know, for stuff that actually matters, if you have the... If you find the dumber opinion, it's probably from the public. 
All right, so now let's look at the opinions of U.S. scientific achievement. So in our general scientific achievements, which is basically anything that's not engineering or technology, 54% uh, of the public and 92% of scientists think that we have the best advances. You know, say that like Trump. 34% of the public and 6% of scientists think our scientific advancements are basic bitch average. And 9% of the public and 1% of scientists think our advances are worse than other nations. And why? Because we're motherfucking rich. And one of the ways America measures its star-spangled cock besides our military is our massive red, white, and blue spaceships. And also, don't look at the history of NASA. Don't look at the history of NASA. The U.S. government doesn't want you looking at the history of NASA. And on our medical treatment side, 51% of U.S. adults think that we have the best, 29% think that we have average medicine, and 20% think we have shitty medical treatment. For scientists, 64% think that we have some real badass stuff, 22% think we have, you know, average, and 13% think it's just absolute dog shit. And, you know, I gotta say, I side with the scientists on this one. I look, the treatment is expensive as fuck, but holy shit are you a dumbass if you don't think surgery robots, medical grade laser cannons, nanorobots, and pills that take you on a journey aren't awesome. Okay, and finally for this, relating back to last episode, we have our K-12 achievements. And not surprisingly, both sides of this are really fucking dislike how bad science is in K-12. Uh, but mind you, still number 14 in the world, if I'm remembering that right. Uh, so for U.S. adults, 29% say it's the best, 39% say it's average, and 29% say our education system is bad at teaching science. For scientists, however, 16% like it, 38% say it's eh, and 46% say that we suck shit at teaching kids science. And again, I gotta agree with the scientists on this one. Our system for teaching science stinks worse than an outhouse outside of a frat party. And what we see here is something really interesting, because you can't expect the public to be mystified by science, right? I mean, cavemen are fucking amazed by fire and bronze tools, so you'd expect something similar to be true in the modern day. What we actually see is, in places where our scientific advances are awesome, scientists are ecstatic. Why? Well, because, put simply, we're too stupid to get it. I think, the idea of doing surgery with a laser sounds pretty cool in sci-fi, and you might be like, Oh, okay, I mean, that's pretty neat. And move on. A scientist understands how hard it is to create a consistent and controllable beam of heat energy like that that's delicate enough to be used on oh-so-easily-burned human tissue. But when science really sucks shit, most of the public will shrug and decide, like, ah, well, I mean, we have some improvements to make, but that's not a big priority. While scientists aren't sharpening their pitchforks, they're writing manifestos in cabins in the woods about how one day we'll all pay for our crimes against science while making gunpowder from scratch to create bombs with. Okay, and now we move on to what the public thinks the contributions of science has been and what the outside looking in thinks about consensus. First, has science helped the lives of most people? 79% say yes, 15% say no. What about healthcare? Again, 79% say yes, while 18% say no. And to me, that feels like cost is playing a part in that. And then food and the environment, the same 62% say it's positive, while 34 and 31% say no, respectively. 
which again, I think says a lot more about society than science. Well, yes, science has given us and continues to give us horrific chemicals and also gives us the means to give us cancer with our food a lot easier than ever before, has also contributed massively to positive environmental changes, understanding the world around us, uh, conserving uh, our natural resources, um, and also and also keeping us healthy. I mean, keep in mind, one of the common additives in most food is iron, or adding sodium to foods common to diets with low sodium intake. The problem is that we're very focused on the aesthetic of environmental scientific achievement being a 19th century Thomas Edison-looking asshole ripping a miles-long clouds coal smoke into the air and pissing oil into the riverway, not to get rid of it, but to kill fish. And the beliefs on consensus. So, the public believes that only 42% of scientists believe in the Big Bang, while 52% are skeptical, which is more in line with the 51% of Americans that are skeptical about it. And actual scientists? And they're pretty fucking close to 100%. Why? Because it's a paradigm. All the signs point to that being the case. And the public also thinks that 57% of scientists believe in climate change while 37% are skeptical about its existence. Which is wild, because just about a third of Americans are also skeptical. See a pattern here? Oh, and everyone's favorite, evolution. 66% of scientists agree, according to the public, while 29% don't. And, uh, yeah, 34% of Americans don't believe in evolution. So, what have we learned? Well, people want to believe that science supports their view of reality. Because that gives it legitimacy. But that is a good segue. So, over to the soapbox. Alright, so what am I going to do with this segue? Don't use science as a metric for meaning or purpose. And look, I'm sure some of you are already typing some form of comment or email telling me that I'm a fucking science-denying scumbag that isn't appreciative. That isn't what I'm saying. What I'm saying that science isn't trying to answer questions of meaning and purpose. Science, as I said in the beginning, is data. It is as close to fact as we can get. And it's not going to tell you fuck all about what to believe or what to do with your life. Because that isn't the point. You ask for a number, science gives it to you. It's like the joke in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The machine answered the question of life, the universe, and everything. What the fuck does that mean? That is your job to answer which is the realm of philosophy, or, if you're a fucking freak like I am, faith or religion. But where do I sit with science? Why, I love it. I love to know answers about things, and also using science in my creative works, it's very satisfying. It feels fair and grounded. It makes everything into a system that I don't have to make up. And science is otherwise just really fucking awesome. I mean, ever since I was little, I've asked questions about things. Deep existential questions and I wanted to learn how the world worked and what the world used to be like and might be like in the future I mean for fuck's sake until I read Ranger's Apprentice in 6th grade I mostly if not entirely read science and history books and I became obsessed with shows like Mythbusters early on preferring that oftentimes over cartoons it scratched that itch for me and as I've aged, I've made my love for science and my passion for creation kiss like I'm a weave with anime figurines in my mom's basement. Now, I used to watch Game Theory religiously, and I know, make fun of me all you want. 
But I did. And even now, even though I'm a politics-minded, humanity-smooth brain, I still love speculative biology videos and series like Bibliridian's Alien Biosphere series. And I sometimes sit down to watch it all the way through, over and over, like I'm seven years old again, reading an eyewitness book. I also love Vsauce, and, you know, Mindfield, created by Vsauce, is one of the best science communication shows to ever exist online. I don't rely on science for meeting our purpose. I look within myself. I know that we evolved. I know the universe started with the Big Bang. We have evidence, and a lot of it. I trust the scientific process and understand that's fucking hard and takes forever, but the times that end up being correct. And those are the realities of the world. Those are the baseline assumptions. But what do I find when I look inward? I find a faith that is unique to me, and a dedication to try and make the world a better and cooler place. Even if it's just a couple dumb little podcasts and maybe a board game or a couple Twitch streams at some point people can go to when they're sad just to have a smile for a second. You know, to find something where the world isn't a dumpster fire. Alright, and before I get too sappy, let's just call the episode. Alright, and there we have episode 12. Once again, happy pride, everyone. I hope society stops face-fucking itself long enough to recognize us. You know, like science already has. Anyways, if you have opinions, advice on how to make show better, cool science topics to look into, or your favorite science communicator you want to shout out that totally says nothing about your sexuality, and, you know, really anything else you want to tell me, make sure to email me at waytatpods at gmail.com. That is W-A-Y-T-A-T-P-O-D-S at gmail.com. Remember to check out my other podcast, Waytat Nerd, where I do basically the same thing with nerd topics like fantasy, sci-fi, role-playing games, etc. Where I hope you like the topics just as much as this one. And also remember to follow me on Twitter at Waytat underscore pods for more episode announcements. Have a good night. Don't murder. Have fun. And remember, tip your science team. God knows they need some funding. This has been Why Are You Talking About This? And I've been your host, William. Good night.